Well, as I said earlier, uh, Pastor Rick is gone, and so he asked me to fill in, and he asked uh, me to, to continue in the, the consideration of stewardship, and specifically the stewardship of worship. So go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 12. And yes, I did get permission to go into Romans. And he said, hey, it's going to be six years until I get there anyway, so they'll need a reminder by that point. So go ahead and and touch on that. Uh, Romans chapter 12. Uh, Stewardship of worship. Um, What is worship? You know, a lot of the times I'm referred to as, uh, he's he's the music, uh, the the worship guy, uh, because I do the music. And I, I appreciate that because I love worshiping the Lord in song specifically, but it kind of makes me cringe a lot of the time because I fear that that's constraining a person's idea of worship to simply this, to, to, to the music time of singing together. A few of the definitions of worship that I was able to find is just common understanding, uh, especially among churchgoers, would be the singing of songs in praise to God, that that is what worship is. Uh, just a regular dictionary actually says it's the reverent love and devotion accorded a deity, an idol or a sacred object. And that would get uh, a little bit closer, actually. Uh, Dr. John MacArthur says that worship is honor and adoration directed to God. Again, a little closer. David Peterson says it's an engagement with God on the terms that he proposes and in the way that he alone makes possible. A little little bit closer. And then I I like this one uh, the best. Dan Block says that true worship involves reverential human acts of submission and homage before the divine sovereign in response to his gracious, gracious revelation of himself and in accord with his will. Let's pray together. Father, this morning we ask for help, for understanding. We ask for the work of your spirit to soften our hearts where they may be hard, to quicken our hearts where they may be faint, or to draw our hearts to yourself where they might be straying. That as we study worship, as we consider our lives and what you call them to be and what you have purchased them to be, that you would work change. Father, please, in my heart and each heart that is here, give me clarity of speech and communication and attentiveness to each one so that we might magnify your name together as a body and individually as we go from here in a few minutes. To you be all the honor and glory and praise in Jesus' name, amen. So this morning, we're gonna look at the stewardship of our worship in two parts, the why and the how. We're gonna do this in Romans 12. Let's read Romans 12, just verse one. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. You can tell right off the bat that Paul has a pressing matter on his mind and on his heart. He, he wants the Romans to understand what is to follow. He says, I urge you, it's to, to exhort, to speak strongly, to come alongside in a manner and kind of bring somebody along. And paired with the infinitive coming up where it says to present your bodies, it has a flavor of a command. And so this is something Paul is communicating to the Romans, you need to do. You must do this. But before he even tells them what to do, he gives them the why. 
And he gives us the why as well. He says, therefore, and that points back, back to chapter 11, and indeed that actually points back to chapters 1 through 11. His argument throughout. It's also summed up nicely, though, in that little, little phrase, by the mercies of God. So therefore, thinking all the way 1 through 11, and by the mercies of God, work together to give us the why of what Paul is about to exhort, of what he is about to urge upon the Romans and us. The mercies of God are the why. The mercies of God are the grounds on which Paul makes the exhortation that he's about to deliver. So mercies, the word sums up chapters 1 through 11. One of the things I've appreciated most so far about uh, Pastor Rick's preaching through Romans has been the, the chapter summaries that he's done at the end. I feel like that, you know, we're, we're, we're in deep, we're in deep in the verses, and then at the end of a chapter, he pulls back and he says, there's the bulk of the argument. And so you can trace that argument all the way through the letter, and, that, and that's important because when Paul says, therefore, in Romans 12, you've you got to know what the therefore is there for, which is 1 through 11. So I've appreciated how he does that. It helps to understand the overall argument. So for our sake this morning, a quick review. Chapter 1. The gospel is necessary because the unrighteous are condemned. Chapter 2. The Jew is also condemned even by the law that they themselves try to follow. Chapter 3. The whole world is guilty of sin and its consequences, but faith offers justification. Chapter 4. Justification by faith was, was also God's Old Testament plan. Not something new. Chapter 5, the results of this justification are peace with God specifically, reconciliation with God specifically, and then righteousness for the believer. In chapter 6, he talks about those who are justified uh, being diligent, needing to be diligent in the fight of the lingering influences of sin in their bodies. In chapter 7, he talks about the law. The law is not bad, but actually it leads people to Christ. Chapter 8, Despite the struggle with continuing sin, believers are free from condemnation and absolutely assured of their position in Christ. Chapter 9, God's election and grafting of the Gentiles are according to his plan, not a, not a recent addendum to the plan. Chapter 10, Israel has, a, has, a, has an, an immense need to hear and understand the truth of the gospel and then chapter 11, Israel's previous obstinance and blindness served to facilitate the grafting of the Gentiles, but it did not remove Israel or exclude them from God's favorable intentions and his covenant with them. So that's all leading up to chapter 12, and he says, therefore, by the mercies of God, I urge you. What are the mercies? It's everything we just said. The word here also, also has a connotation of compassion, looking with favor and kindness upon someone who, who is weak, who is incapable, doesn't have the strength or ability, and that'll be all the more clear as we look exactly at these mercies. We see in what we just summarized and in chapters 1 through 11, we see God's mercy in dealing with a sin-sick world, a world deserving condemnation received a Savior. We see God's compassion in making salvation an issue of faith, not of works. 
because we don't have the strength or the ability. And so God said, no, 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 no. It's not by works. It's by faith. He rests salvation on his work and our simple belief in his work, and that's mercy. We see God's mercy to completely remove that condemnation once we are forgiven in Christ. The battle with sin would be enough to drag anyone down into despair and hopelessness if our right standing before God depended on our works and our own righteousness. But God looks at us and he sees Christ. He sees Christ and his righteousness and thus there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And that's mercy. We see God's compassion to provide his own spirit to live within us and empower the fight against sin, to empower the task of living for God and not for the flesh. So you see, these are all the mercies that, that Paul has in mind when he says, therefore, by the mercies of God. God's mercy in taking a people who were once not his people and drawing them to himself and making them his people. God's mercy in dealing with a stubborn and rebellious covenant people his faithfulness to the covenant with, with Israel shines like a lighthouse on a dark night. And all of this is by God's plan, according to his own intention and desires and ultimately for his own glory. But these are the mercies that God has in mind when he says, therefore, I urge you, by the mercies of God, because of all these things, Here's what needs to happen. Here's what you must do. It's, it's interesting that what follows Paul's urging, looking further even than just verse one and two, is a list of, of very nitty-gritty life practices. He says you need to think soundly. He says you need to use your gifts. You need to love others. You need to serve others. You need to persevere when you're in trials. You need to bless your enemies. You need to be, be honest and submissive to the government, et cetera, et cetera. Those practical daily life things flow from, from those theological grand notions that Paul just, just worked through from chapters 1 through 11. Yeah, they do. Every area of life becomes subject to theology. And our response to that theology, your job how you work, that's subject. Your, your neighborhood interactions, how you relate to the government, the way you treat your church family, the way you use your time, all of these things are subject to the theology that we read here. And there's a response that's mandated all of these are to be done in response to theology, in response to the facts about who God is and what he has done, in response to his mercies. And Paul says that that response, that response to God's mercies, by the mercies of God, he urges, he exhorts people to give a holistic offering of ourselves in worship to God. Robert Mount says, in view of God's acts of mercy, it is entirely fitting that we commit ourselves without reservation to him. To teach that accepting the free gift of God's grace does not necessarily involve a moral obligation on our part is a heresy of gigantic proportions. 
the popular cliche, he is Lord of all or not Lord at all, is absolutely right. The popular cliche, he is Lord of all or not Lord at all, is absolutely right. And so Paul grounds his exhortation to worshipful living in the theological truths concerning God and salvation. How does that manifest? That manifests in, in how we worship. There's the why, who God is, in view of his mercies, by his mercies. That is why we now do what Paul lays out for us. Why? That's why we worship, and here is how we worship. Paul exhorts us to present our bodies as a sacrifice. That word there, he says, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies. That word present is very, has very priestly understandings to it. It carries with it the idea of, of standing or coming into someone's presence for the express purpose of serving them. The Septuagint uses this word here to speak of the, the priests in the Old Testament as standing before the Lord to serve him. And so a priest would, would, would be consecrated by God and he would consecrate then himself. Also, he'd dress in his priestly garments and then he'd come and he would present himself to God for the sake of his service. His service through his priestly duties. There, there's an intentionality to this. It's coming into the presence for a reason. Not haphazardly, not, not by chance, not, not as just a, a side note, but this is an intentional and purposeful presentation of self. This priest's duties would include offering a sacrifice, often in the form of animals brought to be slain on the altar. The giver of the offering would lay his hands on the animals, symbolizing a, a transferal of sins, and then the priest would slay the animal, Take that body, put it up on the altar, and burn it as an offering of worship to the Lord. There, 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 would, be, um, there would be a mess, there would be blood, there would be pungent smells, there would be noise. And all of that idea, that, that understanding of a sacrifice, uh, of an offering, I think, I think we, we don't quite get because we're not regularly a part of watching animals be slain and burned. <laughs> But that's, that's what it would be in, in the Roman's head. As he said, I urge you to present your bodies as a sacrifice. They think, wow, that, that, that image of, of the blood and, and the burning and, and the death that is involved in that. That would be in their heads. And Paul tells the believers that they too are to present themselves before the Lord in his service, just as those priests did. And they were to serve him by also presenting an offering but this offering was not an animal. It is they themselves. He says, present your bodies. I found this word choice just fascinating because it literally is the word for, for, for body, the, the, the physical nature of our body. It can be used metaphorically, but in plain meaning, it's this flesh and blood vessel that, that we walk around in. And verse 2 ensures that the reader doesn't think that Paul is only talking about that. The, the, the context here is, is obviously a holistic sense of understanding it's the mind, it's the heart, it's the spirit. But here, he very clearly with emphasis says to present your bodies. 
And he seems to be emphasizing the, the corporeal aspect of our lives in this instance. Maybe it's in response to a, a common philosophical distinction that people made back in that day of kind of saying, well, okay, you've got the physical part of you and you've got the spiritual part of you. And the physical part of you is just, it's just bad. It's just sick and it's just going to be doing wrong things regardless. So what's really important is what you think and what you feel and how you relate uh, on a spiritual level, and this is just, it's gonna do what it's gonna do, so don't worry about that. That distinction between the physical and the spiritual. So part, part of this could be the fact that, that Paul is saying, no, 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 listen up, Romans, you need to bring that physical part of you along with everything else and offer that also. You present that as an offering to God as part of our worshipful response to the mercies of God. Douglas Moose says, Paul deliberately uses the word body, which is soma, to describe what we are to offer to God. This word focuses on the embodied nature of our persons, reminding us that we are physical beings. We're interacting with a material world. By using this word, the apostle emphasizes the degree to which our worship should involve even the very prosaic parts of life. As we eat our food, we worship God by thanking him for what he has given us, honoring him with our conversation, and providing sustenance for the bodies he has given us. As we sweat on the treadmill, we worship God by seeking to be good stewards of the body he has given us. As we seek, speaking for myself sometimes in vain, to avoid driving with the same egotistic aggressiveness as others, that's almost more of a Los Angeles point of view, but this this works too, We worship God by displaying the fruit of his spirit. We do our work to the best of our ability, worshiping God by giving our best to our employers. One of the greatest temptations in the Christian life is to bifurcate the spiritual world from the material, to begin thinking that only certain parts of our lives have eternal significance. But all of our life is to be a continuous worship of the God who created and redeemed us. Paul says, present your bodies. Bring yourselves with intention and purpose into the presence of God and say, here I am. Why? As a sacrifice. As a sacrifice. Now, I found as I was thinking about this this word and this concept that I had a slightly personal bias about this word sacrifice, I automatically kind of think toward, toward the idea of, you know, the, I'm going to sacrifice something for the sake of gaining something uh, more favorable or with greater gain. That's just what immediately pops into my head when I think of a sacrifice. I'm going to sacrifice uh, my, my weekly or daily Starbucks for the sake of paying off debt or for the sake of being able to take my wife on a trip, or, you know, those types of things. I'm going to get rid of this for the sake of, of obtaining something else. And that is not what this sacrifice means. This is not a manipulation. This is not a, a means of achieving anything. Um, f- by, by, by doing this, it's, it was helpful for me to think of offering And an offering is entirely contingent upon the worthiness of the one who is receiving the offering. Especially Israel presented offerings because of who God is and what he said. And and that's what we're to do as well. We're to say, 
by the mercies of God, because of who he is and what he's done, I'm going to take myself, the entirety of who I am, and even specifically here, the physical side of me, and I'm going to step in the presence of God and say, I am an offering to you. How does one do that? Was Paul instructing us to, to become Isaacs? To, to actually literally be placed on the altar and bound and to wait for that knife to descend and the flame to be sparked? No, we, we know this because of the description of the sacrifice that we are to be. That alleviates that concern. So look there, it says, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living, a living sacrifice. We don't present ourselves in service to be killed. We present ourselves in service to live. And how do we live? A living and holy sacrifice. We live in holiness. This is not the idea of moral perfection. It's the idea of, of consecration of being set apart, of being different and uncommon. See, in the Jewish mentality, there were three categories of kind of existence of a person or of, or of an object. There was a category of that which was holy, and then that which was common, and then that which was unclean. Had kind of three, three different stratas there, and an object could pass back and forth between those, those different layers depending on whether it had received a ceremonial consecration or whether it had been um, desecrated somehow. And so Paul then here, he, he places a spotlight on every aspect of our lives. And he says, I urge you, elevate everything in you to that highest tier of consecration. Not, not, not unclean, but not even just common. Not even just, not, not, not what is not offensive for the sake of a double negative, okay? But take it from unclean and from common to that which is holy. The greatest degree, degree of, of set-apartness that's what we're to do with our physical bodies because what we do with our physical bodies is a part of our practical response to the mercies of God. And we present these bodies as offerings alive, not dead, and wholly set apart for the Lord. And this results in it being pleasing to him. We've talked about offerings in the past. Pastor Rick has, has discussed them, especially as he's hit some of the Old Testament prophets. And we see that the Old Testament prophets castigated Israel for bringing uh, lame offerings to God. Right? Where he says, come on Israel, get your act together. You're bringing the, this, this sheep with a broken leg. You're bringing this runt of a cow. You're bringing the, these deformed and, and weak offerings to God. And that's not what God requires. That's not what God is worthy of. God is worthy of the first fruits, the best. And that's what Paul exhorts. And so if you flip that on its head and you say, well, if that's a pleasing offering, as it says here, acceptable to God, What's the lame sheep? What's that, what's, that, what's that sheep with the broken leg look like metaphorically for us? It's a person who does not consecrate themselves in their entirety to the Lord. 
It's that person who, who says, uh, you know, my, my physical side and my spiritual side, have, there's a distinction between the two, and um, I can excuse what I do with my body because that's just kind of pedantic and, and just fleshly. But that's the blind goat. That's the deformed lamb. It's an offering that won't be pleasing unto God because what is, accepting, what is acceptable to God is a living and holy sacrifice. And as Lord and Savior, he's worthy of the best. Paul makes it very clear. He says, after 11 chapters of deep theology regarding God and his mercy, the response to this is, offer yourselves in holistic and sanctified service to God. Note how this next phrase, which is your spiritual service of worship, that kind of takes that whole notion and renames it. It serves serves as an apposition, kind of saying, okay, we've got this, This this is what it is. It's an acceptable service of worship. Sorry, I just did that from a different translation. Then it says your spiritual service of worship. And the ESV and the Holman Christian uh, reference it similar, but there's other ways to understand this too. The New English Translation and the New King James say, which is your reasonable service? And the reason for some of the, the, the difference between those is just in how the words can be translated. The word logikos, which can mean either rational or spiritual, okay, so it describes this service of worship, um, can be either rational or spiritual. Not like, oh, he's so spiritual, he's so holy. Not that spiritual, but the, the non-physical spiritual. Okay? So, in the, in the sense of pertaining to non-physical things. So, it, it, it can either mean it's, it's rational, it just makes sense, or it can mean this is something that, is, that pertains to the non-physical realm. And perhaps it's even a blending of both. The offering of our physical body is on the one hand, it's the rational, logical response when someone considers the fact. And this is strengthened by the fact that Paul is making a logical conclusion here. When he says, therefore, that's a logical argument. Look at these facts, look at this evidence, therefore, do this. It makes sense. It's the right response. It's logical. But the spiritual sense is also fitting as a contrast even to the physical offering of ourselves. See, when we offer ourselves physically, it transcends that physicality into the non-physical world as a, as a fragrant aroma to God that ascends to him in a pleasing way while we retain life. See, the offerings that were sacrificed before were burnt up in smoke that ascended up to the Lord and they died, but we live, and yet it becomes a fragrant aroma to the Lord while we still can retain that life. So there's that understanding of both this makes sense, but it also transcends the physical realm, and that's what this is. When we do that, we're just doing what makes sense. In light of God's mercies, by the mercies of God, this is what we should do. And then it says, service of worship and or just service. The word latreia here is translated as worship or service, but here it's, it's quite uh, adequately done as service of worship. It's the idea of service for the purpose of worship. A priest stood before the Lord in order to serve him, but that service was worship. 
And we are a kingdom of priests who present ourselves to stand before the Lord and serve him. And that service is worship. Service, activity, doing something for God, that's worship. And they're inseparable as a concept. Worship is not just some esoteric mindset that happens. Worship is activity. As you present yourselves in the presence of God to serve him, that's worship. So where the Jews of the day would have been so used to the concept of coming before the Lord and killing an animal as a physical offering to him, Paul changes their understanding in light of God's mercies to understand that they are to present themselves and we are to present ourselves in our immediate physical lives as consecrated offerings. Again, Dan Block, his definition of worship. Listen to this. True worship involves reverential human acts of submission, obedience, and homage, ascribing worth and honor to someone. Homage before the divine sovereign. Why? In response to his gracious revelation of himself, God has revealed himself to be such and such, and so we respond with submission and homage. In response to his gracious revelation of himself and in accord with his will, how God says, you know, we, we, we don't get to decide. This is in accordance to God and his will. So we have to ask now, what, what are the kind of things that we can do in that service of worship? And this is where stewardship comes in big time. We see the why, we see the how, the presentation of, of self, the presentation of our physical being in its entirety is what God requires and the stewardship of that is that every aspect of our lives becomes an issue of worship, becomes an issue of choice in worship. We have to ask ourselves, will I worship God with this moment, this decision, and this action, or will I worship something else? Will I worship myself or this person next to me, or money, or fame, or reputation, stuff. All the, all the moments that we face are, 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 are choices of, of worship. Choices of, do I present myself to God for the sake of serving him in worship, or do I present myself to something else for the sake of serving that something or someone in worship. Listen, listen here to the list of things that the Bible describes as opportunities to worship or serve God in the sense of a priest serving the Lord because you can't, you can't extricate the idea of worship and doing in obedience and, and homage. They are, they are inextricably linked. Romans 1.9 talks about preaching the gospel. Paul says, God, whom I serve and in my spirit, and that's that same word, serve, in my spirit and in the preaching of the gospel of his son. In Romans 14, Paul talks about dealing gently with those who think differently in gray areas of, of spiritual life. He says this, for he who in this way, dealing gently with such a person, serves Christ and is acceptable to God, there's that same word acceptable in the sense of an offering and approved by men. Those who give generously for the building of God's kingdom. In Philippians 4, verse 18, Paul says, I have received everything in full and I have an abundance. 
I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you sent. Listen to this description of what they sent. They sent provision for Paul and his work. It's a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. (laughs) That sounds like something to strive for. What about this? Showing gratitude for what God has bestowed on us. In Hebrews 12, verse 28, it says, Therefore, since we have received a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. Same verbiage. You want to give God a a service of worship? You want to give God an expression of worship? Be grateful. Be grateful. You're praising him with our speech and with our song. Hebrews chapter 13, 15 says, Through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. Thankfully, I can keep doing what I do. Doing good deeds and sharing with others. These are all ways of presenting ourselves living and holy as offerings which are acceptable to the Lord. Doing good deeds and sharing with others. Hebrews chapter 13 says, And do not neglect doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. Hey, children, look at me. Look at me. Listen to this one. Children's obedience of parents is a way to worship God. When you obey your parents, Colossians 3.20 says this, Children, be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing. This is acceptable to God. That's something that you can do. You can walk in sacrificial love. Ephesians 5.2 says, And walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, And the result of that is that he was an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. So when we imitate Christ and when we walk in love, we are an offering to God and a fragrant aroma. Do you want to smell good to God as you live your life? It's in the nitty gritty. It's in the details. It's in the small things. Share. Be grateful. Sing and talk of the praise of God. So think, think about those things and how they present situations where we face the choice to pursue worship of God, as is our rational and spiritual service of worship, or we pursue the worship of someone or something else, which makes no sense in light of God's mercies. When we have a chance to share the gospel, will we worship God or someone else? When we have a chance to be generous, will we worship God or someone else, something else? When we have a chance to be gentle, sacrificial, and loving towards those around us, will we worship God, because that's what the choice is, or will we worship someone or something else? Children, when you're faced with the choice to obey or disobey your parents, do you want to worship the Lord or do you want to worship something else? When we choose the content of which we speak or sing, will we worship God or will we worship something or someone else? Uh, honestly, these things make me never want to be called the worship guy again. <laughs> I wish that I could live up to that kind of a moniker. I mean, the, the, the ramifications of this are huge. It's an incredibly challenging concept. 
So you have my permission to call me the music guy, okay? <laughs> Looking at each situation that we come across, the state of our mind, the activities of our bodies, and saying to ourselves, how can I worship the Lord through this? In light of his tremendous and multifaceted mercies, how can I respond by presenting my body as an offering to him? Now, it's tempting to think of this in one of two ways. First, I have to go big or I gotta go home. I need, I need to be a missionary in the deepest, darkest jungles of Africa or I need to be the CEO of a, of a, a gospel-centered philanthropy, philanthropy organization. Woo. Or I need to become a martyr. That, that could be a tendency. Or you could be this. Uh, oh man, I, I need to live like that guy. I need to be what he is and do what he does in order to be this kind of a thing. And yeah, if, if, if God calls you to something big, if God says, I want you to do this, go do it. And yes, we can learn and grow by imitating those around us, but... I want to drive home the fact, and hopefully this, this study has helped you to realize that you are to present yourselves as an offering to God, holy and living, acceptable to God, with where you are at and how you are wired and in the context in which God has placed you. You're totally equipped for it. That's God's call on us. He says, you, do it. Every little thing counts. Are you a stay-at-home mom with however many kids you have wondering what in the world of a difference does this make? Look at what I do. I change diapers, I do dishes, I vacuum the house, and I do it again. It has weight. You can worship in that in a way that is pleasing, acceptable to God by saying, God, I am for you. I'm consecrated. Do you go to the office and you sit in a cubicle and you wonder how God could ever care about what you do? He cares. Because he says, when you do that, I want you to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice. Because of the mercies that you saw from me, go and worship in this way. That's where you're at. That's what you can do. Students, do you go to classes and think that studies or homework are somehow divorced from worship? No. That's the context of where you're at. That's what you have before you to do. So present yourselves as a living and holy sacrifice in your studies and in your classes. And if you choose to worship God through that and let your life live that way, then it will be pleasing and acceptable. If you choose to live in a different way, then it will not be pleasing and acceptable. Are you a shut-in who's, who's watching this service, uh, not this service via live stream, that's next service, but perhaps you know a, a shut-in who, who struggles with this, who says, ah, I, can't, I can't be useful. I can't, I can't make God care or make a difference or, or be pleasing to him. Weaknesses, 
like physical ailments or things like that don't constrain the ability to say, God, here is my body. You know what my body is like. You know what my capacities are like. And I'm going to give what I have to you in worship. Every word, every deed is an opportunity to act in homage and submission to God in accordance with his character and his will for us. You are a worshiper, period. The question is, how will you steward the worship that you exhibit in your daily living? Let me leave you with the words of David Livingstone, explored, preached, served in Africa for over 30 years. Listen to his words as we consider what Christ has done and how we may respond. People talk of the sacrifice I have made in spending so much of my life in Africa. Can that be called sacrifice, which is simply paid back as a, as a small part of the great debt owing to our God, which we can never repay? Is that a sacrifice which brings its own reward or healthful activity, the consciousness of doing good, the peace of mind, and the bright hope of a glorious destiny hereafter? Away with such a word, such a view, and such a thought. It is emphatically no sacrifice. Say rather, it is a privilege. Anxiety, sickness, suffering, or danger now and then with a foregoing of the common conveniences and charities of this life may make us pause and cause the spirit to waver and sink, but let this only be for a moment. All these are nothing when compared with the glory which shall hereafter be revealed in and for us. I never made a sacrifice. Of this we ought not to talk when we remember the great sacrifice which he made who left his father's throne on high to give himself for us. Be happy to talk to anyone who wants to discuss this further. There will be someone at the prayer room after as well if you want to discuss this further. But let's pray and we'll go from here considering how to be offerings to God. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for manifesting your will and yourself in such a way to lay that type of a claim out there. Give us grace. Give us dependence on your spirit. Give us dependence on the true facts of the gospel and how Jesus Christ has, has worked absolute, perfect, fulfilled, mature justification on our behalf that we can live in light of that. Change us so that we walk out of here better able to understand and to execute the idea of presenting ourselves to you in our entirety every aspect of our lives as an offering. You are worthy, Lord. You are worthy. In Jesus' name, amen.